So Ezekiel chapter 36, and starting reading at verse 23, Ezekiel 36, 23. This is God's word. God says, and I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Well, amen. What a great uh, reading from God's word. What a great uh, time that we can uh, look forward to living in this, this promise uh, given to Israel uh, applies to us as we look forward to God's heavenly kingdom. Um, and even today, as we embrace the promises of baptism. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. We're going to be thinking about baptism. In the weeks past, we've covered plenty of ground uh, as we've thought about worship. Uh, what we do in worship, and one of the main things we've thought about is that in Reformed and Presbyterian churches, we hold to something called the regulative principle. The regulative principle states that we only do in worship exactly what God has commanded us to do in his word. We don't do any more, and we don't do any less. We've then covered the normal elements of worship. What is it that God commands us to do? Well, we read the Bible, we pray the Bible, and we sing the Bible. That's what we've said so far. We, we read, we hear the preaching of the Bible, we pray the Bible, and we sing the Bible. Well, as we move now to the sacraments, we could speak of them as seeing and smelling, touching taste, and tasting the Bible. Because in the sacraments, these are um, ways that we have the Bible explained to us in an illustration or almost in a, a dramatic fashion. The God-ordained sacraments instituted in the church by Christ in the New Testament are the Lord's Supper and baptism. By their very nature, these are occasional elements of worship. It's not likely that we will have someone to baptize every week. And so the sacraments don't take place in worship every week. But they cannot and they should not take place anywhere else but in the service of worship. Both Augustine and Calvin, following after him, refer to the sacraments as a visible word. In other words, like I say, they dramatize or illustrate the gospel in a visible and tangible way. But the sacraments on their own 
cannot be understood by sinful human beings. We need the word of God to explain the sacraments to us. And so they must take place alongside preaching. And that's why the only acceptable place for the sacraments to be administered is in the service of worship. So according to the regulative principle, can we have drama in worship on the Lord's Day? Well, yes, of course we can. But there are only two dramas which are commanded in the New Testament. And those are the dramas of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're going to come to look at the Lord's Supper next week. But tonight I want to focus our attention on baptism. Uh, and I will uh, confess straight up front uh, that this is going to be a little bit longer than normal because there's quite a lot of ground to cover in one night. I think this is an area of teaching where the Presbyterian Church uh, have been quiet, perhaps, in the last uh, 50 to 100 years. We've allowed Baptist churches to dominate the argument. And so tonight I want to try and address the question, what do Presbyterians believe about baptism? What do we in the PCI believe about baptism? And in doing so, I'm going to be leaning heavily on this little book. It's a very thin book, very readable book. It's written by a former minister of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, the Reverend Roger Crooks. It's called Salvation's Sign and Seal. If any of you want to do a little bit more reading around baptism, this is a good place to start that reading. Um, and I actually have a spare copy of this book, which is free to a good home. If anybody wants it, just get in touch and let me know. I'm going to follow some of the structure, the outline that the Reverend Crooks uses in his book. And so we're going to talk about baptism and think of it in this order. We're going to first of all think about the basis. Or baptism. Then we're going to think about the meaning of baptism. And finally, we're going to think about the subjects of baptism. And by subjects, I mean, who is it that we should baptize? Who is it that we should baptize? There are other questions that we could address about baptism. And I've tried to cut this down and make it as succinct as possible. So I don't think we're going to get to anything but these this evening. Let's start with the basis of baptism. Like with so many theological issues and doctrines, when thinking about baptism, we have to start with God. The basis for baptism is found in God's covenant of grace. God's covenant of grace. That's an important term to remember. This is a, a unifying theme which is running throughout the whole Bible. The, the topic of covenant is one which in itself could fill a whole series of talks or sermons. And maybe one day we will have a series on covenant. But for now, I want to try and speak about the covenant of grace in as simple terms as possible. As I say, it's something that can be found throughout the whole Bible and can be spoken of as a theme which unites all the different parts of the Bible into one. And it centers on a promise of God throughout Scripture 
that we heard in Ezekiel 36, that he will be the God of his people. And this is the basis upon which God deals with his people. It's through his covenant of grace. It's through the covenant of grace that he rescues people from sin and death and brings them into his light and life. Now, the covenant of grace is necessary because of the sinfulness that entered into humanity through the fall of Adam and Eve. Adam was acting as a representative head for humanity, and because he sinned, we have sinned too. Remember that in Adam's fall, we sinned all. The penalty of that sin is that we are unclean in God's sight, and we deserve everlasting death. And we covered this when we looked at the book of Genesis. We spoke about the guilt, grime, and grave as a result of sin. But in his grace, God promised there would be a rescuer who would be a new representative head of a new covenant, the covenant of grace. Later on then in the book of Genesis, God made a series of promises to Abraham. And these promises are part of the covenant of grace. I don't know if you used to sing in Kings Mills and Jared's Pass, uh, but whenever I was younger, we sang a, a song in Sunday school that went, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord. I don't know if you sang that before. As is often the case with a simple children's chorus, there's a deep and significant truth in there. We today are recipients of the covenant promises that God made to Abraham. We are children of Father Abraham because we are part of the same church, the same family of God that he established through Abraham and his children. Abraham was justified before God through faith that there was a coming redeemer, that there was going to be a messiah or Christ. And as such, we can say that Abraham believed the gospel. In Genesis chapter 17, a red pen. Genesis 17, which is a key passage for us here. In verse 7, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. So you see in that the central promise again of the covenant of grace, that God will be God to his people and their children after them. It's important for us to recognize that this is the gospel. This is the gospel. The, the gospel has not replaced the Old Testament covenant that God made with Abraham. The covenant of grace is the gospel, that God will be our God and we will be his people. So Jesus coming in the flesh, the, the first coming of Christ, well, that wasn't a break with the covenant made with Abraham. It was a fulfillment of the covenant made with Abraham. Paul speaks in Romans chapter 4 about Abraham 
as the pattern for the Christian faith. He talks about walking in the footsteps of Abraham. And Jesus himself speaks of Abraham in these terms. In John chapter 8, Jesus says that Abraham saw the day of Christ. So there's a way in which we can say Abraham was a Christian. Now, that means that the covenant people of God, otherwise known as the church, are the same people in both Testaments. The Christian church did not begin at Pentecost. It did not begin with the first coming of Jesus. The Christian church has its roots deep in the Old Testament with our father Abraham and the covenant of grace. Okay, so, so far we haven't mentioned baptism. But you know when you're building a house that you have to have good foundations and you don't always see the foundations, but if you don't have them, the whole house will crumble. And so the foundation for baptism, the basis for baptism is found in the covenant of grace. But now we have that foundation in place, let's move on to think about the meaning of baptism. The reason that we baptize in the church is, I think, very obvious. It's a command, a clear command from Jesus in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But what is happening exactly when we baptize requires a little more thought and investigation into the teaching of the New Testament. In the most simple sense, what we can say is that baptism is a sign and it is a seal of a person's entrance into and their membership of the visible church. It means somebody comes into membership of the visible church. So what do we mean by visible church? Well, when the Bible speaks about the church, there's a number of distinctions that we have to get right. For example, there's the church on earth now, today, at the minute. We are the militant church, or the church militant. We battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. But there is also the triumphant church who have overcome those things and are in heaven where Christ is. There's also a difference, biblically speaking, about between, sorry, the, the local church of a congregation or even a denomination and the worldwide, the, the universal or Catholic church. And so the word church doesn't always mean the same thing. In the Bible, it's often nuanced. And for our, our discussion this evening, we need to see a distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. The invisible church are all those people, uh, those who are, have been doing new membership classes should be aware of this. The invisible church are all the people who God has saved, will save, and uh, will save in the future has saved today, has saved in the past, and will save in the future. It is God's elect people from every place and every time. The, that is the invisible church. But those people, who, those who are saved, 
are known only to God. We cannot say if someone is in the invisible church or not. We don't know someone's state of regeneration. We can't say if someone is born again. So instead of doing that or trying to judge that for someone, we talk about the visible church. And the visible church is made up of everyone who professes Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. Everyone who professes faith in Jesus, and along with their children, make up the visible church. Now, as elders of the church, we will try our best to ensure that a person means what they are saying when they profess Jesus as Lord, but we can't see into people's hearts. We don't know people's hearts. And so the visible church is likely made up of a mixture of sheep and goats. That's the New Testament illustration. Wheat and weeds. And they will not be separated from each other here on earth. They will be separated in the final judgment. And so baptism is the initiation of entry into the visible church. So being baptized doesn't save a person. It doesn't guarantee salvation. But it does mean that a person is part of the visible church of Christ on earth and will receive all the blessings and benefits of being part of that church. To understand this a wee bit better, let's return to Abraham and the covenant of grace. Membership in that covenant, sorry, the covenant of grace with Abraham was marked by the ceremony of circumcision. In Genesis chapter 17, God told Abraham, again, this is Genesis 17. He says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So in the Old Testament, circumcision marks a person's entry into God's people, into the visible church. And God sees this as really, really important. It's not negotiable. In Exodus 4, there's a really interesting story. You've probably read it before. God is planning to kill Moses. This is just after the burning bush encounter. But God changes his mind whenever Moses's wife, Zephora, circumcises their eldest son. So placing this sign and seal of the covenant on those who are God's people is something that God takes very seriously. Now, we don't believe that the water is magic. We don't believe that it will make someone a Christian. We don't believe that someone will become regenerate at the moment they are baptized. But we do believe that God commands us to administer this sign, the sign of the covenant, to those who are members of that covenant. And so for us, living in the New Testament era, after Christ has died, we believe that because Jesus poured out his blood on the cross, that blood has already been spilled for the forgiveness of sins. And so the sign of the covenant has changed. It's no longer the bloody sign of circumcision, 
but the sign of baptism. And we see this when Jesus teaches in the Great Commission. If he, if he had meant circumcision, he would have said, go and make disciples, circumcising them. Paul makes the same connection in Colossians chapter 2. So we have these two covenant signs, baptism in the New Testament and circumcision in the Old Testament. These are what you might call two administrations of the one covenant of grace. And circumcision and baptism carry the same spiritual meaning. They both signify the removal of sin, the forgiveness of sins, our union with Christ, adoption into the family of God and the seal of the Holy Spirit. And you can see all of those things in that passage, that beautiful passage we read earlier from Ezekiel. And I've printed them out for you on your, some on your um, prayer sheet as well. So baptism, like, the, like circumcision before it, points to the work of God. It works, points to the work of God through Jesus to make us free from sin and part of God's people. The covenant of grace is something that God has not only promised, but God himself has fulfilled it through Jesus. The sign and seal of baptism is a visual representation of what God has done for a person. Just as water washes away dirt from the body, Jesus' blood washes away sin from our souls. Now, I have to say that while I respect and I love my brothers and sisters in Baptist denominations, it's on this fundamental point that we differ and disagree. People who hold to believers only baptism believe that baptism signifies a person's faith in Jesus. It's a sign that someone has faith in Christ. But as you've heard, as Presbyterians, we believe something different about baptism. We believe baptism is a sign and seal of a person coming into God's covenant people, which represents what God has done through Jesus. So for Presbyterians, baptism is not about what we are doing or saying. Baptism is about what God has done. So we've seen the basis. We've seen the meaning of baptism. That brings us to the most controversial aspect of baptism, the subjects of baptism. Who should be baptized? I think I need to make the point that our position within the PCI is often misunderstood. It's often misunderstood what Presbyterians believe. And hopefully most of what I've said already has been helpful to try and, and help us think through the issue. It has to be said in PCI, we do hold to believers' baptism. It just so happens that we also believe that we should baptise the children of believers. I think we're often mis misrepresented on this point because while what we hold to is absolutely a biblical position to hold, it's hard to argue it from one verse of scripture. It, it needs to be taken on the basis of the whole storyline of scripture. And, and everything I've said so far, well, we need to really get a grasp of all of that before we're going to understand what Presbyterians believe. 
We have to understand the covenant of grace. I also should say that we have to be careful about basing any teaching or doctrine on one particular verse. That's called proof texting, and I think it's quite dangerous. Further, it has to be said that, that all those who can properly call themselves Christians will that we hold to the doctrine of the Trinity, which is a word which is not present in the Bible, and it doesn't spring from one verse in the Bible. So, those who convert to Christianity and have never been baptised, having come to faith in Jesus, those people should be baptised as a sign and seal of God's covenant mercies towards them. They receive the sign of coming into the fellowship and entering into the visible church. Believers' baptism. But I don't think that point will attract as much controversy or interest as the argument that I'm about to make that children of believers should be given the sign of the covenant of grace because they are members of the visible church. Now, look, I can't say everything that I need to or that I want to here. You know, we're already running out of time. I want to try and be brief. First of all, the covenant that God made with Abraham was not just made with Abraham as an individual. Listen again to Genesis 17, verse 7. I, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So God makes the covenant with Abraham and his children. Children are included in the covenant of grace under the Old Testament administration. It means that they are part of the covenant people of God, members of the church. Well, this principle, which is established in the Old Testament with Abraham, is never undone anywhere else in the Bible. It's never overturned. And I think, in fact, that the New Testament evidence for including children is overwhelming. For example, listen to what Peter says uh, in Acts chapter 2, after preaching the gospel at Pentecost. Peter says, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise of the gospel, the covenant of grace that God will be yours and you will be his, is not just for you as an individual. Although it is for you as an individual, it is also for your children, for you and your children. Another example, in Matthew chapter 19, we read about Jesus welcoming children. Even though the disciples try and send the children away, Jesus won't do it. He says the kingdom of God belongs to these little children. And he blesses the children. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus is not baptizing the children, but it does show that Jesus recognizes children as belonging to the kingdom. Another way of saying they're members of the church. We also have the example of Paul's letters. For example, the letter to the Ephesians, and we could say the same about Colossians. But we've studied Ephesians. Paul addresses his letter in the first verse, 
to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. In other words, the church. And then in chapter 6, he specifically addresses children, telling them to obey their parents in the Lord. And so Paul must have regarded the children of believers as saints, as faithful. The most common example given is that of the Philippian jailer who had his whole family baptized along with him, demonstrating that the promise is for him and his children. Further to these arguments, there are things that are not said in the New Testament. It has to be considered how inconceivable it would be to a first century Jew that their children would not be included in the promises of their religion. This is the way it's always been since Abraham. And so presumably, if there was going to be a change in how things worked, it would have been dealt with in the pages of Scripture. It's not there. There's no such passage. Finally, the new administration of the covenant of grace in the New Testament era. Well, it includes Gentiles as well as Jews. It implies that, that the new administration is more inclusive than the previous one. So now to exclude children, to exclude a group, would be inconsistent. It doesn't make sense. It's for this very reason that girls are included as well as boys to receive the covenant sign of the New Testament administration. But I also want you to realize and notice that baptism is not for all children. It's not for every child. It's for the children of believers. It's for the children of those who are in the covenant of grace. The children of believers are members of the covenant people of God. They are little disciples. And so until they demonstrate otherwise, Christians are to raise our children as little disciples of Jesus. I think most people recognize that children of believers are, are specially blessed. Even if people don't agree with infant baptism, many of them feel compelled to dedicate their children. We know that the, the, the children of believers, the child of Christian parents, has blessings that children outside of the church do not have. Okay, so I'm going to rest my case there for the inclusion of children. But I want to say, friends, I am willing to talk this through with anyone who has questions. I personally have thought long and hard about this issue. I know that it is one that many people struggle with. So if you want to talk about this, please, please get in touch with me. But let me finish by recapping a wee bit about what we've learned. Baptism is so much more than a debate about who should be baptised. It must be admitted, it has to be admitted that some people bring either themselves or their children for baptism for the wrong reasons. The sweetness of the ceremony, the expectations that are placed upon them by family or congregation. A misguided thought that the water will somehow magically protect this child from hell. So we have to say that neither sentiment nor tradition nor superstition is a reason for baptism. 
Equally, we do not baptize as a sign of the faith a person has. We baptize believers and their children because the Bible teaches us to do so as a sign and seal. They are members of God's covenant people and recipients of the covenant of grace. Baptism is so much more than a mere symbol. It is a means of God's grace. It's one of these ordinary means that we've been talking about thinking about worship. God's grace is conveyed to people through, to his people through baptism. Just like when we read or when we preach or hear the preaching of God's word, when we pray God's word, at one level, those are just words. But the Spirit of God uses those words to convey grace to God's people. At one level, baptism is just water. But the Spirit of God uses it as a way of communicating the grace of God to the baptized individual. And that's something that we receive from God at baptism. And it's something that every time we see a baptism taking place, we remember our own baptism. We remember what God has done for us, what God has done for his people. We thank God for what he's done for us through Jesus, that he's rescued us, that he's brought us into his family and made us clean from sin. Let me pray for us now.